One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, welcome back to the podcast. It's Allison. Today, I'm bringing you another guest author. Today, you'll be meeting Ned Johnson. Ned Johnson is an author, speaker, and the founder of Prep Matters, an educational company providing academic tutoring, educational planning, and standardized test prep. A professional tutor geek since 1993, Ned has spent more than 40,000 one-on-one hours helping students conquer an alphabet of standardized tests and honing his insights on communicating with students and parents. A battle-tested veteran in the fields of test preparation, anxiety management, and student performance, Ned coaches kids how to manage their stress while simultaneously motivating and empowering them to reach their full potential. Ned has written for the New York Times, The Telegraph, U.S. News and World Report, and The Washington Post. He's also co-authored three books, including the national bestseller, The Self-Driven Child. So, Ned, welcome to the podcast. Oh, I'm delighted to be with you. I um, got your book, and uh, I know that this is an audio recording, so people won't see the visual, but I want you to see this. Uh, you know, I have eaten your book and have all these tabs of which I know we're not going to be able to talk about everything in the time we have together, but I just wanted you to know what a pleasure it was to read and how much information you've packed into this. And thank you for this contribution to the world for parents. Well, thank you. We are so grateful when people, it, it, particularly with folks with your your knowledge and experience, read our books really closely. So, so thank you for that. Yeah. And so the title, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home, which mm-hmm. you wrote during the pandemic. Yes, we did. <laughs> and so, I mean, 
What did you see during the pandemic in those areas? Well, you know, I, I think the most important thing is sort of two takeaways. One, that sort of ambient level of stress was higher, but particularly for kids, there were some kids who did better during COVID than and many people who, who did worse. And, and certainly my, my writing partner, Bill Stickshoot, is a clinical neuropsychologist and works with a lot of kids where learning isn't easy and, and have learning issues, attention issues, behavior issues. For a lot of them, virtual school was so much better because they didn't have, you know, the social pressure, the social stress of, of navigating, you know, middle school or friend dynamics or whatever. And then they could often do their work in less time and, and then spend their time doing, doing other things. But um, one of the big things, of course, is that parents, many, many for the first time had kind of a front row view of their kids doing school or for honest, sort of not doing school. And that I think was crazy making for a lot of parents and, and, and led some of them to fall into kind of more command and control behaviors than might've been helpful. Uh, and also a lot of educators, a lot of parents are worried about learning loss, which is a valid concern. I, I think we're more concerned about the lost, the year or plus lost of kids developing autonomy of, of learning how to learning how to do school, learning how to navigate friendships, learning how, you know, transitions on and on and on. Um, and when they had support, perhaps, you know, less opportunity, you know, parents being more controlling and perhaps fewer opportunities to practice their life skills outside of the home, um, come the, the, you know, full speed reentry to, to school has been hard for a lot of kids. I've heard from educators that that's a real problem, that when it was just so easy to look at your mom or dad who was looking over your shoulder at the screen and say, what did the teacher say? What is she trying to teach? <laughs> <laughs> and and to, to regain that autonomy just in terms of those attentional and paying attention and raise, asking your own questions. Um, we've got lots we have to recover from. Yeah. You say you start the book with one of our big adlering concepts is this, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, um, the relationship between parent and child and um, the importance of that belonging in the home or belonging in the classroom. Can you say something about that parent-child relationship and the significance that, that you've seen and why we need to make that strong and healthy? Yeah. So when in, in the course of writing this book, we did a whole bunch of, uh, uh, um, focus groups, right? Talking with teenagers and, and young adults and, and some older kids. And one of the questions we asked the kids was, who do you feel closest to in the world? And sometimes it was mom, sometimes it was dad, but sometimes it was, you know, my grandma, my cousin, my aunt, my uncle, my, my coach, my friend. And we said, okay, so what is it about them that makes you feel close to them? And the, the answers were all variations of, well, one, they listen without judging me. And two, they don't tell me what to do all the time. And we know that a close connection between a kid and, and a parent or another caregiver is as close as you get to a silver bullet against the effects of, of, of stress-related disorders. So again, we know that one of the, if there's a silver bullet against the effects of, of, of stress and stress-related disorders, it's, it's a kid having a close connection with you know, an, an adult, ideally a parent. And so we really started this book with talking about using empathy and validation to foster that close connection in part because we know it's by sharing hard emotions that we get closer to one another. And, you know, in our first book, The Self-Driven Child, we've, we made the observation of, of the number of kids that I see, and I mostly work with high school students who are, you know, they're working on this, you know, school stuff, you know, standardized tests and will get up, get upset and, and be, be really spun up. And then, and then after they sort of vent a little bit, say, oh, but please don't tell my mom, please don't tell my dad that they, they, they lose their minds. They blow, they top, they'll, they'll be mad at me. 
And we thought, oh gosh, that's not good because of course, who knows these kids and understands them and loves them and supports them more than their parents. But if it's their kid's perception that their parents will lose it and they, 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 when, they, when things aren't going well, they can't share those with their parents, boy, does that leave them in a, in a tough place. And parents, of course, want to help. I mean, that's, that's their job. They love these people, right? And, and so, so when we, we talk about using empathy and validation to make it feel safe for kids, to parents, to make it feel safe to kids to bring hard feelings to their parents, it puts parents in a, in a more powerful position to, to actually help their kids because they, they know what's going on and, the, and they're positioned to help as opposed to not knowing what's going on and, and, and kids struggling by themselves. Yeah. And so for, for people that haven't had the opportunity to pick up the book, I just want to talk about the structure of this book, because it mm. is a book on communication and that's, mm -hmm. <laughs> and using communication as the primary tool to help with this, with the motivation and the relationship and the stress tolerance. And um, the book is laid out so that you've got the brain science in there. You've got mm -hmm. tons of real life stories from the families that you and your uh, co-author have you know, been working with for hours and hours. So you, you really do feel like, oh, this could be my kid. These are situations that I'm faced right. with. Uh, and then that instructional part where you're really giving them the language, try saying it this way or avoid saying it that way. And then every chapter ends with sort of a putting it all together. And then the I love that you have the rebuttals, you know, the people that say, <laughs> but hold on a second, if I really do it that way, if I listen without judgment, aren't they going to interpret it as that I'm giving them permission to do this or whatever? So, so you, you circle back and you close the gap so that there's full understanding at the, at the end of every chapter. So I just, I thought the, the, the structure of that was just made so beautiful, so beautiful, easy read and easy to grab things to go back to, you know? Well, um, well thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, you know, at the, at the end of the day, there's, I mean, just few things can be more frustrating and 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 crazy making as a parent than than wanting to help your kid and or, and knowing that you have a, a solution, you have advice, you have ways that you can help, and having to blow up in your face and you just don't understand that, and you're like, oh my gosh, and and then you feel like you want to ram this down the throat. If only they would listen to me, and then and rather than being part of a solution, we kind of become part of a problem. We take a problem that that, that existed and kind of made it even worse, and then everyone's and frustrated. And so this, in many ways, we kind of intend the book as a bit of a how-to manual. Here are the situations. Here's what we might typically say. Here's why it doesn't perfectly work. And here's what you might say instead, because parents want the best for the kids. They have lots of great advice to give. And so much of this is not the what, but the how. I mean, we don't have chapters on talking to kids about sex or talking about, you know, racism. I mean, we're not content experts in, the, in those things. But whatever it is that you want to have a, a, an important conversation about, about whether it's giving help or sharing values, the how is awfully darn important. Yep. And, you know, you, you move on to say that part of it, too, then, is about us getting a good conceptualization about what our job is as a parent. What's the <laughs> role of a parent and mm -hmm. you know, what's those long term goals? And so you talk about, um, uh, you know, well, you don't call it parenting styles, but, um, you know, speak mm -hmm. to us about your consultant approach and <laughs> yeah so this was so this was something we talked about in the self-defense child that 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 in a perfect world parents move in the direction of thinking the thinking of themselves more as consultants to their kids than as their their boss or the manager or the homework police because in part because we want kids to have as much experience, you know, making decisions for themselves, you know, handling their own problems for themselves, you know, really developing into adults 
And when we as parents think of it, think of that it's our job to, to tell kids what to do all the time, to have their answers all the time, then kids are deprived of the, the, the experience of, of weighing the pros and cons and trying to make informed decisions, of making mistakes and saying, now what do I do? And, and part of this is born out of the brain science that you know, we are so concerned, as is anyone who's a parent or, you know, a parent and author, so concerned about the anxiety that, that's, that's in prevalent in way too many kids and kids who kind of struggle with, with motivation. Either they're obsessively driven or they're figuring kind of why bother at all. And from a, from a neurological perspective, what we're talking about is connections between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. So when something is challenging, when something doesn't go well, you, we jump into coping mode as opposed to freezing and, and being paralyzed or, or running away from the problem. And what happens is when we're presented with a stressor, something, something hard happens, in a perfect world, our prefrontal cortex activates and it, and it starts and it dampens down the stress response and starts running the rest of the brain saying, what do I do? What are my options? How can I handle this? And it's the repeated experience of something that's a little challenging, something that's a little intense, intense and doing something with that, that wires the brain for, for re resilience and stress tolerance in, in, in other situations. As parents, then, what we want to do is be consultants. And when we see a problem, we offer help. We offer advice. We don't take control of the steering wheel unless it's a life or death situation. And, and that doesn't mean you're going to get a, get a C rather than A. That actually is not a life or death situation, right? <laughs> parents because, think it is. That's part of why they need to read this book. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, no, I just interviewed Madeline Levine about her new book, Ready or Not. And she has this wonderful concept that she calls accumulated disability. And it's just, you know, kids who are maybe great in school and great at grades, but they get into, you know, outside of a household and they kind of fall apart because they haven't handled, they haven't had enough experience handling things for themselves because we as parents, because we love them and we're concerned, we jump in and we jump in and we jump in. Anything that's worth doing well eventually is worth doing poorly now. You know, in, 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 the, in our book, What Do You Say?, um, Bill had been lecturing in, in, in Texas, and um, there, after it, a parent came up and she said, I'm a therapist at the Menninger Clinic. Bill, and, and Bill had been talking about a kind of a lead independent school in D.C. And she said, we know that school really well because those kids go to some of the, you know, the most elite colleges in the country, and then they can't handle it. You know, they, they emotionally, they can't handle it. And they end up at our place for, for treatment for depression. Because, and he, she said, in 201, they have not had enough experience running their own lives. And so what we want to do is as parents, as consultants, we observe, we see needs, we see need gaps, we see all kinds of things, but we don't want to jump in and tell kids how to do it all the time. Because when we do that, we deprive them of that opportunity. Again, the prefrontal cortex engages, you know, Tina Payne Bryson has a lovely line where she says, adversity plus support becomes resilience. Adversity without support becomes trauma. And based on the research of Steve Mayer and other folks, we make the case adversity plus saving becomes dependence, right? And you constantly need someone else to jump in and save the day for you. And it's, it's just, it's an accumulated disability. And it's a terrible disservice to have our kids enter high school with beautiful, exit high school with beautiful grades of college admissions and no ability to, to navigate the world by, their, by themselves. And that tendency of parents seems to have gotten worse in, in more recent times. It seems that that's on the rise. Well, it is. And, and, 
part of it is, you know, we talk about in the self-driven child that the most stressful thing that people can experience is a low sense of control. So we're, this is why we want, we wanted to work hard on helping parents have their kids have a more sense of autonomy and a sense of control, meaning the, the, you know, the prefrontal cortex, the brain state that supports it. But it is stressful for parents to have less control, you know, to, you know, close your eyes and, and cross your fingers and hope, hope that this all works out. It's hard. And so as the world has gone more stressful and, you know, if kids are more stressed than parents are more stressed, if parents are more stressed than kids are more stressed. And so we, as parents have a natural inclination to want to seize more control ourselves because it lowers our stress. There's this wonderful research by a, a, a researcher named Jesse Borelli out of University of California, Irvine. And she's a, a researcher parental over control. So she has this, she has this experiment where it brings in kids, 12 and 13 year olds, puts them, puts them in front of a digital puzzle and has a parent in this case, all moms all along for, you know, to help. And they're, and they're there for moral support. That's it's okay. Ned, keep at it. You'll, you'll get, you'll get this. You'll figure it out. One instruction, only one instruction to the moms. And it's this, don't tell your kid what to do. Don't tell them how to move it or, or don't tell them the solution. Just, you, know, you can just hang with them there. And it's a little bit mean because what they're actually have done is giving kids puzzles that are almost impossible to solve, but nobody knows this. And the moms are just there to watch. And as the kids think, I'm going to, I'm great at these things. I'm going to make my mom so proud. And then of course it's it basically impossible to do. They get more and more stressed, more frustrated, and they get more stressed. And they, they know this because the kid has a heart rate monitor. And as the kid gets more stressed, their mom gets more stressed because she too has a heart rate monitor. And eventually every mom, they just, they can't take it anymore. And they jump in and break the only rule. No, sweetheart, over there. No, try to left. Oh, no, maybe to the right. Because it's just hard to, sitting on your hands and doing nothing is so hard. And as the moms do this, oh, their stress comes down, but their kids goes up even more. And so yeah, it's hard. I mean, but this is why we have a chapter in their book about the language of a non-anxious presence. And that's, it's a hard ask for some people. Some people are more wired that way. But part of what, in, you know, in, in, in lecturing all across the country for the self-driven child, we, we, you know, we saw, we see stress everywhere. You know, there are second grade kids in Seattle Full school refusal, second grade, boys in Dallas in fifth grade, overwhelmed by the pressure of doing well on this, these math tests, because if they don't do well enough, how will they get into a good enough college? And we thought, my goodness, if, if kids everywhere have this high level of stress, what is going on? And, and some of this is, you know, their financial issues. There's this, there's this virus thing you've probably heard about, but some of it also is what do we as parents do, or, or, or maybe perhaps what are we not doing that we might be doing differently? And it seems to us that that to have an entire population with increasing level of stress, there must just be this kind of drip feed message of, of stress. And so some of it is we as parents feeling like we're bad parents unless we are constantly checking on them. What are the grades up to the to minute? What are, where, where's the location up to a second? Well, and as soon as we know, oh, the grade's good enough or oh, they're safely at school, we feel better. But as we do that, we're actually eroding our stress tolerance and making, and in short term, we feel better. Long term, it makes us and our kids more and more and more anxious. And the problem is all emotions are contagious, including stress. And so our, our language of, did you do it? Did you do it? Did you, you know, or, or how was school day? Was it okay? You know, and we're, we're giving kids this message that, that, that they should be afraid all the time because we're afraid all the time. Now, the twist to this is that all emotions are contagious, including calm. <laughs> calm is contagious is a mantra of the Navy SEALs. Now, these are people who 
probably better at tolerating stress than normal human beings. And so we thought, well, gosh, how do we convey calm? Some of this is through our language. We, we, we love the work of John and Julie Gottman, who talk about to have a positive you know, aspect to our relationships. We really want to have a, a ratio of positive to negative words, a five to one of things usually work out okay. You know, It's okay. You don't have to be the best all the time. I love you no matter how well you do or how hard you work. These are messages that the world is okay even if it isn't exactly as we want it to be. And it turns out when you put people in a functional MRI, even a negative word, even the word no, this cascading effect of, of, of stress throughout the brain, because it turns out the negative words are five times more powerful than positive words. So the Gottman's you know, figured this out from experience. This was backed up by, by neuroscience. And then the last thing that I'll say is, is that um, in terms of being a non-anxious presence, if any person or any system or any family or any school has more stress coming into it than healthy ways to have stress come out of it, over time, bad things happen, right? And so we want to be very purposeful in teaching our kids healthy ways to relieve stress. Going on a smartphone is a great way to avoid stress, but it doesn't actually pull stress out of our system, right? So Bill and I talk enormously about the benefits of sleep and exercise, and for the two of us, um, meditation. And I'll, I'll share with your listeners my uh, my delightful, wonderful 19-year-old son, who should be in a second year of college, is in the next room over, because we got a little bit of a surprise uh, middle of the summer when he we were on the phone call with him, and his language kind of fell apart, and I thought he was having a stroke. It turned out he has a brain tumor. And he fortunately, you know, he's a wonderful kid. So he chose, if you're going to choose the brain tumor, he chose the right kind. So it's, it's very amenable to treatment. And it looks like we're, he's almost out of the woods now. Oh, thank goodness. Right. Which is, I mean, all that one can hope for, but you know, we have, we're in here in DC and there's some really, we, we've had great care. He's had great care, but my wife, um, probably a couple weeks into us, into this, she said, you know, I've had like three people ask me, how are you so calm about this? And she said, honestly, she said, honestly, Ned, I don't think I would have handled this the way I have if I hadn't too learned to meditate. And I've been meditating for about a decade, my wife, a couple of years ago. And it's simply a tool to pull stress out of our system. And because we don't, you know, if we don't have healthy ways, we, we, we either end up in bad places or we will just avoid and avoid and avoid because we can't take on more. If you want to be able to have grand adventures and really throw yourself out there, you need to have ways to recover. And the same thing exists for our kids. If we want our kids to really push themselves in school, in sports, in music, in, 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 in risks of, gosh, should I talk to the person that seemed kind of cute, but they can say no. All those things that are scary. We want home to be a safe base. So when they come back, they can fully recover and not be like, wait, well, why didn't you do whatever? Which if we're honest, isn't really a question. It's an accusation with a question mark at the end, <laughs> right? One of, the, one of those communication right. don'ts, parents. <laughs> right. And and home doesn't feel safe. And so, you know, I have a kid, my son is is just preternaturally glass half full. I and mean, it's just the way that he was wired. It's just, I mean, it's just a gift. But I'm also convinced that that it's been easier for him to stay there and have confidence that this is going to come out great because he has mom and a dad who have confidence that this is this is going to come out just fine. Do we know that? No, but we can choose to believe that in part by working really hard on ourselves to be non-anxious even during an anxious time. You know, and I think, Ned, when I read that chapter, I thought... You this is revealing a blind spot that parents don't realize they have that I'm guessing that if you did a self-report 
uh, or, you know, sat them down as you did the teens and, and asked a focus group about this. I am sure they are unaware that some of their language and their um, position on school, to your point, they think they're doing the right thing to stay on top of the homework. They think they're doing the supportive thing to ask, you know, did you get that t- test back? Uh, and they, they don't realize that when when we say anxious or stress being transmitted, they pro- they may not see through their own subjective perspective that 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 is what we're talking about when we're talking about stressed and anxious parenting. I think they think that we're talking about um, people who have been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder mm-hmm. and they're thinking far, far too specifically, I think. I don't I don't. So I, it was very enlightening that chapter on, on these quiet ways we pass it on. And that, yeah, that is a beautiful, a beautiful insight. I really appreciate that. You know, and, 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 and part of it is simply that I think a lot of parents would feel like they're bad parents if they weren't asking about the homework, about the homework, about the homework, because they think that that's kind of the, the most important, the most important thing. You know, we would maintain that the most important outcome of, of high school and adolescence is not where you go to college, but the brain that you've developed, right? You know, go, go in as you leave the household, go off to college or, or wherever you go. Um, and particularly, particularly for parents where, where school is not going well or anything's not going well, there, you know, substance use disorders, what have you, they, I think it's easy for parents to feel like I would be a bad parent if, if if i if i were loving and supportive of my kid when when this is all going on it's as though i'm i'm okay with things not going well and and so all this energy goes into you know kind of feeding the weeds we put all of our attention on the problem thinking if only this problem would be fixed then my kid would be better whereas opposed to if i help my kid he she they will be able to solve that problem much more capably um because you know, is it, you know, Jane. Is it Jane Nelson who says, you know, kids do well when they can. I may be attributing that to the, the, the wrong person, and so, you know, in, you know, Marsha Linehan and DBT, we make the we we take the posture. The kids are doing the best that they can for now. They may need to do better. They may need to do things differently, but with validation, empathy, we we just say, I you're doing the best that you can right now. Right. And when we can accept that, I mean, my, my I have a daughter's brilliant kid, lovely child, and but very, very bright, very sensitive. And, and she was just at the wrong school for her for too long in a place that just is not kind to kids who are bright but sensitive. And she ended up with three months of school refusal at the end of eighth grade. Now, I'm a guy who helps people get into college. What's going on through my head? Right. <laughs> and, you know, and I could have said, I've got, I've got to get you in school. We've got to get these grades and da, da, da. And, and, and said, so, you know, to borrow a line from my co-author, Bill Strickshoot, I, I don't give a fig about your grades for now. Right. I care about you. And I have every confidence when you can, when you want to, when you have the energy that you can do whatever you want in school and just took zero pressure off. Now she was kind enough to reciprocate. <laughs> my wife and I went to the same highly elite college uh, and, and a bunch of my family got there. And I had this dream that, and she announced to me, our, our, announced, announced to us our freshman year, she said, I have zero interest in going to that college. And I'm like, well, there goes the pressure on me. I don't have <laughs> such a gift, such a gift. And then we really, you know, have got to spend the, you know, four years, she's just now applying to college of watching her decide who she wants to be and her decide what, what does that mean for me for, for, for college? How do I, how do I develop myself? 
And it's just such a lovelier place to be. We go right back to where you started with, with we get to be consultants. We get to ask questions and, and be curious and not have an agenda in this. Now, this may be hard for a lot of parents think, isn't my job to sort of drive my kid to go to the most elite college possible? And we would say no, in part because we see, again, we see kids who, who get into the most elite colleges and then, and then they flame out. And then where are they? And, you know, obviously there are advantages to going to McGill or to Harvard or whatever it happens to be. And, and we're, not, we're not arguing against that. It's simply that we don't, you know, though you may want to, you don't have to. Because telling kids you, that you have to go to an elite college, you have to be the top 10% in order to build a successful life is basically saying to 90% of the people, you're screwed. Good luck with that life. And it's just, it's just, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, it's, it's something kids can want to do, but it's not something they have to do. And that's a lot, that's a lot healthier approach to this. Probably one of the biggest pain points for a parent is having to deal with a child who's angry, melting down, exploding, violent, hitting, kidding, biting. And that could be a toddler, but that could also be a very angry teenager. And of course, how do we respond? often we have trouble managing our anger too when it comes to parenting. So I've put together a wonderful workshop. We're not just going to talk about take a deep breath and calm yourself down. We're going to look at the psychology behind anger, its usefulness, some of the cognitive distortions and our private logic that goes with that, and teach you as well some tools and techniques for in the moment. So check out the link in the show notes for registration. Sign up fast. It's coming up soon and we have limited space. See you there. Convincing parents of that um, takes, you know, maybe 386 pages or whatever your book is. <laughs> but, but, the, but the research behind all of this is there. This isn't folks listening. This isn't just, you know, two uh, parenting experts yeah, yeah, being yeah. philosophical. I mean, this has been well-researched, these approaches. And, um, you know, this, this getting over the fear, to your point, the fear right. is if, if I'm not being ambitious or protective in this way, that my belief about kids' motivation and abilities is that they're going to fall flat. And we're really telling the story that, surprise, surprise, when you back off, they buck up of their own mm -hmm. intrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. So can we, let's talk a little bit more about how motivation in school, because you give the, uh, some great examples yeah. in the book. And this really was in, this is where, <laughs> talk about the life lab. And when everyone said, you know, COVID came and you said there's a percentage of kids and I had them in my practice too, that did really well with online learning because of some of their exceptionalities. But for a bulk of other people who, you know, uh, the motivation just went flat and like flat. And we're having some trouble getting it back. And you, mm -hmm. you, you mm -hmm. share in the book why, why that is and gave some good uh, personal examples. Yeah. So, so thank you. I love that question. The, um, so the, the, in both books, the, the dominant model of motivation that we look at is what's called self-determination theory. And it, it's one of the most supported models in all of psychology. There have been hundreds, if not thousands of studies done and papers written. And self-determination theory is a model of intrinsic motivation as opposed to extrinsic, which is carrots and sticks. And it's really easy to use carrots and sticks because then we as the parent, the, the stick wielder, the carrot offerer feel more control. So it's natural that we, we, we kind of go that way. And it works to a point, but the problem is there is no point 
at which we do some alchemy and extrinsic motivation transmogrifies into intrinsic motivation. So from our perspective, if we want, we want kids to work hard, school, music, life, work, everything, right? But more importantly, if, we're, if we think about it, it's not that we want kids to work hard so much as we want them to want to work hard. We want them to be self-driven. We want them to work hard at building lives that are meaningful and doing important and useful work in this world. So the model of intrinsic motivation, it's called self-determination theory, and says in order to feel that inner drive, we need three psychological needs to be met. One, we need a sense of competency. You know, if you feel like you're the worst math student, you don't want to work harder to get better. You don't want to take and do it at all, right? You need a sense of relatedness, right? Feeling connection to the, the person, the teacher. I mean, good teachers are worth the weight in gold because they don't get kids to work hard. They get them to want to work hard. I mean, math was always okay, but Miss Sanchez, she's just great. I know it's just so fun, right? And third piece is autonomy. And that's what our, the self-driven child was all about of how vital, vital, vital it is to support autonomy. Now, if you think about this past year and a half when we've been watching our kids do or not do homework and you say things, well, shouldn't you be doing your homework? undermined their autonomy because we're now in charge, they're not. We've undermined the relatedness because we're, we're not offering help. We're now the homework police. And we've undermined their competency because we've sort of obliquely said, you're, in, you're incompetent, you're, you're irresponsible. Without me, this wouldn't be getting done. And then we wonder why they're not intrinsically motivated to do this. There's a story in the, in the book about a kid who goes to the elite independent school here in D.C., uh, he, I came back his, uh, and I said, oh, I saw your parents at the book talk we gave. Uh, I said, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, did they read the book? And he said, yeah, I think they did. And I said, has it made any difference for you? And he thought that and said, well, they've stopped asking me, shouldn't you be doing your homework? And this was amazing because this kid is getting the best, the highest possible grades you can get at the most difficult school in Washington, D.C. And I said, well, tell me one more. And he said, well, honest to gosh, every time they say, shouldn't you be doing your homework? It simply makes me not want to do my homework. And they thought they were getting to do things when what they're actually doing is undermining the motivation that he already had. And I have asked this question of something approaching 200 kids and every single one said, oh my gosh, that's exactly right. I was going to do it. But then when they said, then I was just so mad, I didn't want to do it. And then they're stuck because they want to do well, right? But they're so annoyed <laughs> by being treated like a child when they're a teen. So it, yeah, it's 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 hard, and and I say that with great ferocity, kind of protecting teens, but also knowing as a parent of two teens, it is hard to watch your kid not do what you think is in their own best interest. It is it's not easy, but as to your point, there's a ton of science behind this and a lot of learned experience. You know, we beg more from every expert we can possibly find to to support that. Yet this is the better way about it. <laughs> And, and, you know, we have, again, in the privileged position of working with so many families, our direct sample size of knowing this works, even just personally, uh, <laughs> is, is huge. But if you're just the, the one parent with the one teenager and this is not your area of expertise and you haven't dialogued with all these other parents, mm -hmm. it is a big ask to say, you know, have faith, have faith. Um, but as I said, the, the stories in the books are and the research that you put behind each of these examples just makes it compelling enough that that fear does dissipate. Um, hmm. And people can follow that long story arc that, yes, you're, ma you're making a human being and it might look like this on this one test in grade nine, but this, they are not fated. <laughs> They're not fated to fall out of life and be homeless and live on an underpass and all the <laughs> catastrophic telescopic uh, thinking. 
And, and with that consultative approach, it's not that you abandon your child. That's not what anyone would want to do. And it's not what we're asking anyone to do. It's simply that you, instead of standing behind them, pushing them, you stand beside them and say, hey, can, you know, is there a way that I can help? Is the way that I can help, you know, and you, and you say, I've, I got a thought on that. Would you like to hear it? And if they say no, you hold your breath. Typically, the, the typical teenager is so, is, is so curious. They'll come around and say, okay, what was that? Or they'll figure it out by themselves without our help, in which case it helps. I mean, with, with my, I have a daughter who is who's brilliant, and but she's even more stubborn than I am. <laughs> and, and you passed on a good gene there, oh, did you? Oh man, it is great to have strong, strong, uh, have a strong-minded daughter. It just ain't the easiest thing. And you know, and, and so I will offer her, you know, advice. And most of the time, she'll say she'll say no, um, because doggone, I mean, her first complete sentence as a, as a two-year-old is, "I do it," and she's still wired that way. But really, even just saying, you know, would you like some help on that? Without not in a forceful way is my way of letting her know I'm here with you and if I want help. And once in a blue moon, you know, every six weeks or something, she said, I got this, I've got this chemistry test tomorrow. Can you help me with it? And this one experience was a riot because I said, well, let's talk through this because I took chemistry in 1987. I know almost nothing about chemistry, but I'm guessing that if I play consultant, we can talk through this and I'll just ask questions. And, and sure enough, when I sat there, so tell me how this works. And, and when she articulated and talked her, talked it out loud to me, who understands nothing about chemistry, she goes, oh, that's what it was. I sat there marveling at this kid is doing organic chemistry. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on, but it was helpful to her even though I was not a content expert to be offering help and trying to be supportive in ways that she wanted, not in ways that I thought were the better ways to do it. Yeah. She's, she's learned, <clears throat> she's being self reflective taught her the great art of self-reflection of knowing what she needs and how to get it for herself, including you sometimes and you not other times. That's right. That's exactly right. And we want kids to have that before they leave the household of, of, of knowing how to knowing how and when to ask for help is an incredibly important tool, you know, in the adult world. None of us does it alone. None of us. And we want to practice that early on. And, and we we're, we're the, the relationship that our kids have with us can be the, the, the foundation of the relationship they have in, in romantic partnerships and in friends and in, 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 in co colleagues and coworkers. So we, we have a, it's just a huge opportunity. And so, so what do you say to those parents in your practice then that uh, say that they're not living up to their potential? This is one <laughs> of my, I, I shiver when I hear this line, but I probably hear this more, <laughs> more than any other line. Um, do you have, what's, where do you begin with that one? Well, the, 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 the principal thing is that it's conditional love. It's conditional approval. And it's not what parents are thinking. Because parents are thinking, if if I don't push them to you know to to live up their potential, you know they'll I'll, they'll regret it the rest of their lives. I'll regret it. I'll feel like a bad parent. Their gifts won't be available to the universe. All of which I get. But what the kid can be hearing is, I only approve of you when you do things to the max all the time. When you meet my expectations of you, then you're good enough in my eyes. And the most powerful lesson that we can give to kids is, I love you no matter what you do, no matter what you do, I will love you to the day that I die. Sorry, tears me up thinking about my kid. And it's incredibly powerful in part because when people are falling short of their expectation, of, of, of not putting in max effort, almost always it's because it's fear. It's fear of falling short, of falling short of expectations of, of you know, because here's the deal. 
that when, when we tell kids that they have to do it, compete at this level and have to meet our expectations, it makes it, it's, it's a more fear-based message. It makes them more anxious. And the dominant manifestation of anxiety is avoidance. So kids will avoid stretching themselves, avoid doing the extra mile because, you know, I mean, particularly for kids, you know, who are underachieving, right? Bill has, a, there's a story in the book, uh, an eighth grade boy who's a, a, a independent Catholic high school. And, and, you know, so in end of eighth grade, he then makes the decision or the, the choice is made of what college, what high school he goes to after eighth grade. And so eighth grade grades matter, right? And the kid was getting C's and D's and his parents are super anxious and they're pushing, they're pushing him. And the, and the, the principal said, I've been telling him, you know, I sat him down and said, look, this is really important. This is a four year decision. You know, you, 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 ha- you got to pull it together. You got to step up here. And the kid wasn't doing it. I was talking with Bill about it. And Bill said, look, I love this principal. He's a wonderful man. He said, but with all due respect, you know, I see this really differently because you're, the more afraid you make him, the more he avoids doing the things that he, he actually knows he needs to be doing. And he, so I said, he said, I met with a kid and I said, look, it's not really that big a deal where you go to high school. If, if 10 or 15 years from now, I said, I didn't go to good enough high school. I said, give me a, give me a break. He said, you may want to go to the school, but it's just, it's not the case. I do think it'll be important for you at some point, you know, to, to probably engage a little bit better, you know, a little bit harder. So you have the choice that you want, but it's just, it's just not that important. If, if you go to this school rather than that school, I'm confident that you can still be successful and be happy in the ways that you want. And by taking the pressure off, it made it easier for this kid to engage and event, you know, and, and started getting really good grades and, and got into school he was really happy with. Because part of it is we, we talk about in the book about motivational interviewing and um, it, it's work was done with two psychologists working with problem drinkers. And, the, and, and classically, you know, if I'm, if I'm a, an alcoholic, you said, Ned, I mean, you know, if you, gosh, man, you gotta, you gotta snap out of this. If you don't step up, you're going to, your wife is going to leave you. You're going to lose your, you're going to get fired. You're, you're going to lose your health. You're going to lose your house. You're going to lose everything as though one more lesson of fear was going to get me to change my behavior where I was actually, often using alcohol to treat the fear that I had. So with the two great insights of motivational interview, and this will come back to kids in a moment, are these, that we all have a writing reflex, right? When someone brings a problem to us, we naturally want to start solving it. We should try this, you try this, or, 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 or reframe. Well, it's not that big a deal if you let it go. And the people are ambivalent about change. You Meaning I have reasons for and I have reasons against it. So this boy when and what happens is when we argue the thing that you got to do that you got to do the kid argues the other side you got to stop drinking you don't understand how hard it is you got to get your grade ups you have no idea how hard it is so when they're saying these grades these grades these grades these grades he's thinking but i got to put in all this work right i i, I don't want to work for that teacher i hate that guy right that stuff's so boring you know i'd rather be with my friends i'd rather play xbox i'd rather right other and I could work really hard. I could do my darndest and I could go from C's and D's to, to C's. And then if I realize that that's the best that I can do, do you know how hard that is? And then, then, and, and then everyone's still upset with me and I know that I'm just not that capable. It's really scary. And so what we do with this motivational interview is we ask open-ended questions. We try to help and we use validation. We try to help people articulate for themselves the reasons to make those changes. But it's not, it's not easy. It's not easy. But what we're trying to do is really change the energy that makes it easier for kids to change themselves. When we try to change kids, we use energy that just puts people into denial, into conflict, and then they fight us, they fight our advice, and, the, and then they're, and they, and they get more stuck, not less stuck. When we say it's, it's not that big a deal, if for now it's not going that well, 
because I'm confident when you feel like you want to, you'll be able to do some, you'll, you'll be able to do more. Where you are now is not where you will be in the future. And when we can create what seems like a path out of here without telling the kid he has to be on that path, we just don't see kids getting stuck when, when, when this approach is applied. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And again, I, I just want readers to, or listeners, excuse me, to know that as you're reading this book, we've been talking some of these highlights, but you're going to get pages and pages of sample dialogues, sample language. <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, the background, the theory is all in there, but it absolutely is a toolbox it's just got pages and pages of, of examples of what that language looks like so that you don't get stuck going like, oh, I should do this motivational interviewing. What should they say? I mean, you can go to the book and you've got bullet points of language. It's it's really a gift you've given parents here. Can, can I tell the story about the girl in the smoking pot? Yeah. So this is a friend of ours who's a school counselor, a high school counselor. And um, she caught wind of this, this teen who was smoking a ton of pot. So she arranged an appointment with a girl. And we talk about in the book of, about the power of no force. And this is, this is a part of the motivational interview of taking force off the table because that's what creates the resistance. So she said to the girl, she said, look, I am, I'm not going to try to talk you out of smoking pot. I will not be the umpteenth adult who tells you all the reasons why it's not such a good idea. You're a smart kid. I'm sure you understand that. But I also imagine that the reasons why you do want to smoke pot. And I'd really, I'd like to understand your, you know, your experience with it. How does it help you? Why do you like it? I mean, I'm curious. So motivational interviewing, we use open-ended questions, reflective listening, and then wait for change talk. Open-ended questions, reflective listening, change talk. So the girl said, well, um, you know, the, the girls, the kids that I hang around with, they're really, I mean, they're fun. I like them. I think they're hilarious. I feel funny when I, when I, when I'm with them, you know, and I just, I feel looser. I feel, I feel a whole lot uh, less stressed. I feel more relaxed. And our friend reflected all this back. So let, let me just make sure I repeat that back to you. So, so I understand you, you, you know, the, the, the kids, you only really hang out with these kids um, when you smoke. So if you weren't smoking, you wouldn't be with them. And you really like the time that you spend with them and you, and you, and you, and you just kind of enjoy their company. Is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. And they continue on this way for a while. And eventually the girl says, um, she's, you know, um, you know, but it is kind of expensive though. And though this is where as a parent, it's easy to, well, there's your thing. And she said, oh, well, well so it's expensive. Well, what do you mean? Tell, tell me more about that. And she says, well, I buy a couple times a week and it pretty much uses all the money that I have. Um, so yeah, um, it's expensive. Another open-ended question. Well, if you, if you had more money, what, you know, what would you do with it? You know, any thoughts? Well, my friend and my friend Allison, she's got these really cute shoes and I'd love to have a pair of those, but I'd probably get mine in green, but yeah, I'd get those. And, and I haven't had my hair done for a while. So I, I probably do. I probably do that again, repeats the whole thing kind of back to her and says, well, that makes sense. That makes sense to me too. Um, well, okay. Well, you know, really appreciate that sharing, sharing with me really light. They say goodbye. Sees a girl a couple weeks later. She just has her hair done. She says, <laughs> oh my gosh, that looks so cute. Well, saddles up. It looks so cute. That looks great. So tell me about that. Oh, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Last week I got my hair done. Well, that's that's great. I love it. Where'd you come up with the money for that? Oh, yeah. I decided this week I'd only buy one, so I just you know I didn't I didn't hang out with them on the weekend, and so uh, yeah, I went and got my hair done instead. She said, "Well, I think it's I think that's great," and the, because the final observation of motivational interviewing is that it's you know to it, to get kids unstuck when they're I want to but I can't right. It's so much more powerful for people to articulate for themselves the reasons to make ch to change. 
And then to, to feel that you have the understanding of someone else and the support of someone else, right? Because, you know, when, again, when we were doing these interviews, we were writing this book, we kept, we kept asking people, you know, kids, who are you closest to? And they, you know, sometimes, oftentimes, you know, my teacher, my parent, my therapist, and, they, and, because, and we asked what makes you feel close to them? They say, well, they listen without judging. And they don't tell me what to do. And that's exactly what this, this person did. Listen without judging. I'm just trying to understand your perspective. That's all that validation. I'm trying, and you have reasons to feel the way that you did. As this, as this relationship kept going in this non-judgmental, I'm trying to understand your perspective way, this girl eventually realized that the friends that she was hanging out with, as hilarious as they were, weren't a particularly good influence because she was a smart kid and she did want to do well in school and they didn't really have that interest there. And over time, she she started changing her behavior and what she was doing in school, where probably if a parent had just kept going on and on and on about those friends are you know, they're, they're a waste of time, they're bad influence, you're going to ruin, she would have just argued all their, in her own head all the reasons why she so enjoyed their that their time and it's it's not you know it's a particular training to do motivational interviewing but the lessons of I'm just trying to understand your perspective you know I want to understand your perspective that's again what can help kids become close to us and feel safe to share their feelings and in a perfect world get themselves you know in on the on the better side of the thing where they feel stuck and they feel ambivalent about changing. And they're teenagers. So, you know, as they're adulting, they're going to make, they're, they're going to have some ambivalence. They're going to do some experimentation. They're going to try different friend groups and different yes, things on will. for size. And um, again, that faith piece to, to, to know that our journey is long. And if we use the right approach, um, it, it takes a little bit longer to have a dialogue over multiple cups of coffee that are open-ended without being reactive. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the research shows that that is how our kids write themselves. And that's that in that, then there's the pride piece too. You know, right. I got through, I got through a tough thing and I can count on me and I can call in the resources that I need. That's such a better outcome than, you know, my parents cut me off from this friend group. So I ran away from home because they're not going to tell me what to do. And <laughs> which is, oh, it's so which true. happens. It does. Which happens. Um, so, I, I hope everyone has gotten the point that I'm talking to the brilliant Ned Johnson, <laughs> uh, author of a tremendous uh, book. What do you say? And um, I just want to give you the opportunity. Is there anything else that you want to say or promote in this book? Because I will put all the links to purchasing it and how people can find you on social media and things after this. But let me give you the last yeah, the last well, there's, close here. Th there's, a, there's, a, there's a chapter in the book about talking with kids about happiness. Mm. And my, my co-author, Bill Strickshire, is a clinical neuropsychologist was in Dallas, and he was asking kids, you know, how many of you want to be happy as adults? And they all kind of sheepishly raise their hands like, duh. And he said, well, what do you understand from adults is, is necessary to be, to be happy, you know, as a grown-up? And they all said something like, if you get into a good enough college, then everything else will fall into place. And he thought, oh, my gosh. If only that were true, but you know, one of my favorite things is you know the the, the um, Laurie Santos who taught this class on happiness at Yale, right? Like sixty percent of kids at Yale are, are either anxiety or depression, and it's and it's not for lack of accomplishment. It's not like they're not successful enough, right? And so Laurie Santos, Professor Laurie Santos, taught this class on happiness, and in, in, overnight, it was the most popular, most oversubscribed class in the history of Yale. And so you have kids who are as accomplished as they could possibly be in every meaningful way, 
but they don't know to be happy. And it sure seems to us that we can start that process a little bit earlier because look, I'm a guy who works hard to help kids get into their college choices. And so I believe in education and, and all those choices, but goodness knows the worst thing in the world is to get and accomplish everything you want and still not be happy. And so, you know, you read about this in the book, we look at the work of Martin Seligman and who found a positive psychology of Penn. And it turns out there is a formula for happiness. And we can start talking earlier on with kids and modeling our own behavior, the things that are so, so, so important for us to be happy. And, and, and for people who are like, oh, coming, happiness is not the goal. Well, <laughs> it turns out happiness is good from everything, from relationship success to career success to longevity. There's a thing in the book you may remember where they looked at the baseball cards, the rookie baseball cards of baseball players, and they measured their smiles with this broad open smile or kind of a half smile or kind of a, a, a kind of, you know, dour or stoic non-smile. And then they trace them through the years. And the people who had the broad smile compared to the people who had no smile live something close, I forget the exact number, something like nine years longer because happiness is also good for health and longevity. So, you know, again, I, if you want to go to Yale, fantastic, but we want to change the thinking from, I have to go to Yale to have a successful life to, I may want to go to Yale to be successful because I want kids to develop themselves and be as academically successful as they can but not, not, not if it's the expense of their mental health and the happiness, because golly, what's the point of having a kid if you're, if, if we, you know, if we're not helping them build a life that feels happy to them. Agreed. And amen to that. Yeah. Yeah. Start young. What an important contribution that you've made to the world with all of this. Um, thank you so much for your time. And um, I, as I said to people, you, you know, you, you have got all kinds of resources and you're putting stuff out into the universe all the time through your social media handles and things as well. So I want, while people may just be introduced to you through this conversation today, um, hop on over, <laughs> follow, what's, oh, what, do you, what do you call yourself on one of the, the other Ned Johnson? Oh, you, this is hilarious. grabbed your first Ned Johnson well, handle? So this is a story. So, so I am. Um, um, I sit on the board of a college a college access pr program here and, and, and been on this for 20 years and I went to this event and the keynote speaker um, was a guy named Ted Leonsis who wrote a book called The Happy, the Business of Happiness. He's he's wildly successful, owns the Washington Wizards and other sports teams here. I mean, and the, the hockey team as well. I mean, he's just, he's fantastic. And I knew him, uh, I won't go into all the details, but I knew him and I, um, I already knew of him and I talked with him on the phone, but I never met with him. Uh, and so I'm waiting my turn, you know, and he's hobnobbing me with everyone. And I go up and 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 um, say, I just wanted to take a moment and say, say hi. I'm so glad you're giving the remarks today. My name, my, my name is Ned Johnson, and he and he leans back and roars and he said, Ned Johnson, the Ned Johnson, and 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 it was hilarious because the Ned Johnson is Edward Johnson, the the, the founder and owner of Fidelity, who's like a billionaire, you know, five, ten, twenty million dollars. So so so, and he knew that I knew this as well, and I'm like, you are such a rascal. So no, I'm I'm the other Ned Johnson. So that's where uh, that's where I that's that's that. Uh, well, thank you. Um, I I appreciate your time, and um, I hope we have an opportunity to do this again. I would love it. I, I love your work. I love the way that you think and you are. I mean, parenting has never been easy. And certainly in this last couple of years, it's been, it's been as hard as one can probably imagine it being. Um, and we all need help. And your, I mean, your wisdom and your warmth and golly, do you have a great laugh? Um, it's, <laughs> I just, I just, I mean, it must it just be the, the best thing for parents to turn, turn into 
you know, episode after episode, because um, our kids need help and we as parents need help and we can all do this better kind of working together. So thank you for the opportunity to be with you. Oh, great. Thank you. And look at the, look at our two smiles. We're living longer, (laughs) Ned. I was a terrible baseball player, but I can smile. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks. Be well. Yep. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.